Well, uh, we did have our winter camp last weekend in Giddings, Texas, and we had a blast. Um, we are grateful for uh, prayer support and, uh, and all the families sacrificing uh, to, to make it to where the students could go. Our topic, to grasp the greatness of God, you see on our shirts and have heard, I'm sure, already, I feel like is already beginning to bear fruit as we have seen in our group and as we have talked and shared together. And um, so this, this Sunday, as kind of is tradition after a camp, is time to hear from the student pastor. And Ken asked me to preach on one of the passages that we've just been going through in our study on Sunday mornings. Uh, and so what we're going to do is go into the book of First Peter. So you can head there with me. So in 2.20, um, that's the name of our youth ministry, we're um, going through just verse by verse, just making our way through this wonderful book. The reason why I chose First Peter in the beginning was because uh, when I was a teenager, First Peter was my favorite book. And it was one of those where I was like, man, what am I going to you know, spend time teaching to the youth? And I was thinking, what better than a book that really impacted me when I was this age? And so... So we've just been really enjoying our time uh, in, in First Peter. So I'm um, going to pick one of the messages that we've, that we've gone over a little while ago. So, aha, I knew something was missing. There should have been a more climactic moment for that, right? Yeah. <clears throat> but um, but uh, so, so the students who have heard this message already, you guys can just kind of go ahead and laugh at all my jokes as if I just told it for the first time. And I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, this, will be, this will be a sweet time in the book of First Peter. So First Peter is uh, in the New Testament, written by the Apostle Peter. We've got a lot about Peter in the Gospels that we know. And so you can kind of keep him in mind as you're thinking about this letter. And it was written to believers. This letter was written to believers who had faced heavy persecution during the rule of the Roman Emperor Nero. Nero was not a good guy, and it was felt uh, all over the kingdom and the and the and the uh, empire that uh, he he was he actually committed uh, a great sin by um, murdering his mother in order to ascend to the throne and be in charge. Um, not only that, but he was also um, responsible for uh, the lighting the city of Rome on fire just so he could have more room to build uh, his empire. And uh, the fire devastated many Romans, and, and uh, he didn't want uh, it to be on him that that had happened, so he blamed the Christians. And that was convenient to do because the Christians already were not liked because of uh, their association with the Jews. And this man continued to... Uh, to bring persecution on the church. Uh, word reached the Romans throughout the Roman Empire that Christians were responsible for this fire in, in, in Rome, and Christians began facing even greater persecution than they had been. Um, it was told that uh, Christians were thrown to lions, burned at the stake, crucified, and, and hung in the garden of Nero, at night, and lit on fire to be his torches so he could make his way through his garden. Uh, this man was not a good man. He made being a Christian very difficult, so the Christian community, the church, had, uh, was, was, was basically relocated. They had been rejected by the world, and they had uh, faced such harsh treatment, and so they fled. They fled their homelands. They fled their, their families the churches that they met in. And so this letter is written to reach those who are rejected by this world. Reach those who are rejected by this world, and, and yet, while rejected by this world, are chosen by God. And in the opening uh, just words of this letter, you see that he is targeting them in this way. He calls them, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Those two words right there capture elect or chosen by God, but exiles in the dispersion or the dispersion, so they have been rejected by this world. This is the recipients of this letter. Those who have been rejected by this world and yet elected by God, chosen by God. And he's trying to encourage them. 
and show them that actually their rejection by this world is, is a sign or is evidence of their election by God. Elect exiles of the dispersion. So these gathered of God were scattered because of the persecution. And this is the point of the letter. They needed hope. They needed hope. They were down and out, mistreated, questioning their faith, wondering if it was worth it to press on and to keep going as a Christian. They needed hope. That's why this living hope, as Peter calls it, is the theme of the letter. You see it from the beginning, right in verse 3, when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He goes on to talk about this living hope and, and this great salvation that they have in the next verses up till verse 12. At the end of the letter is kind of commonly known as the main verse of the letter, 1 Peter 5.13. Sorry, 5.12. 5.12. Kind of the middle of it there. He says, I have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So you just have to keep in mind what these Christians were going through as Christians. It cost them something to side with Christ and to to claim that they were followers of Christ. It cost them, many times cost them their life, cost them their comfort. And he's saying, This is the true grace of God that has brought them salvation. Stand firm in it. Get your feet dug in. And so he's calling them by this letter to stand firm in God's grace. No doubt it would have a great effect on them in this time of their life, in the life of the early church. In fact, in the early church, there was a symbol that Christians had that stood for this hope, this kind of living hope. And it was an anchor. An anchor. That which is taken from a line, a chain dropped from a ship to bring it down when it's in harbor to keep it still and calm. This is a common um, idea that they were familiar with. And we get the idea from a verse in Hebrews 6.19, which says... We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And here it is, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So here are believers that are being tossed to and fro by these waves of persecution and hardship and mistreatment as if the ship is just about to capsize and turn over and they are going to drown And yet, there is this symbol of hope. There is an anchor. The writer of Hebrews says this anchor is sure, it's steadfast. It's not moving. It's not going to be moved by all the circumstances, by all the persecution that could come against it. It's going to keep that boat in place, safe. And it's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And this is speaking of the Holy of Holies, the place where God would dwell with man. Early on in the Bible, it was the tabernacle, then it became the temple, and then it became very personal as the Lord has made his dwelling place within us. And so we have this hope that is in heaven where God is because of Christ. He's the the forerunner, almost as if the, the small ship would part from the big ship to take the anchor out and then drop it down in. He was the forerunner. He was the high priest. He was the one who went in to where no man could go, into the presence of God, and bring us to that place. So now, through faith in Jesus Christ, you not only have this anchor grounding you, but it is an anchor that is, is not dropped down into the water, into this mysterious deep that you can't see, but it's, it's an anchor that is actually upward. So it's almost flipped, the idea. And this anchor has a chain going up. And it's in heaven, similar to the sea that you cannot see down into and where it actually lodges. We have an anchor of hope that is in that place where God is. And you can't see God, 
or heaven. But this hope that you have is an anchor for your soul. And so these anchors would show up in different places. You would see them in, in ports and in areas where Christians would pass by and they would see them written on walls or, or behind things. And it would, it would give them hope and reminders that other Christians are here too. Hang on. Uh, a lot of uh, grave, graves and tombstones had anchors on them for these believers who were killed for their faith to give everyone just that hope and that encouragement through this persecution. The thing is, we all need hope. We all need hope. And we're going to find this morning is that we need to actually set our hope. You have a responsibility in this to set your hope. And we need to set our hope fully. And we need to set our hope fully in the right place. And Peter has this concern And that is our hope would be set fully on the grace that is going to be brought to us in the future. When we are saved at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in 1 Peter chapter 1 in our section here verse 13 and following actually verses 13 to 21. There are three key aspects of the believer's life in relation to God. You see hope, holiness and honor. Hope, holiness, and honor. Hope in verse 13, which we'll look at this morning. Holiness in the next few verses, and then honor for God or a reverence before God in the next verses. This is what God expects of those who have this living hope. If you have been born again, if you have been born again, you have a responsibility with this great salvation to live with a great response. If you understand the extent of your salvation and how you were saved, in this great act of mercy, then you would understand, I have a response toward God, and it involves hope, holiness, and honor. So just looking at one verse this morning, 1 Peter 1, 13, we'll be discussing this hope. This hope really is the beginning of a pursuit of holiness and a life of holiness. It begins with hope, almost as if you were looking at the end Seeing the end of the race and going, okay, here is the race, this pursuit of holiness throughout my Christian life, and, and I'm, I'm focused on the goal. I'm focused on where the finish line is, and it's approaching quickly. And we're going to find three instructions to help us set our hope fully on future grace, from which no storm can move us. Let me read our verse, and a few after it, it says this. 1 Peter 1.13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also should be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake who through him are believers in God, raised, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Your faith, your hope in God. Let's look at verse 13 and understand these three instructions. The first instruction you have is to gird up. Gird up. We find this in the, the first few words here. But first of all, let's give some attention to the word therefore being the first word, it reaches back to what we understand from verses 3 to 12 and all that Peter is saying. And he's, and he's saying, in essence, this, because God has called you out of his great mercy, he's called you to be born again. He's caused you to be born again. There's nothing that you can do to cause new life or regeneration in your own life. That was an act of God's mercy. 
him doing that, giving you new life. And because you have this inheritance, verse 4, that it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. No one's, no one's fighting over this inheritance. It's fixed. It's yours. And through your new birth, you become a part of the family of God and a co-heir with Christ. And so all that is God's is now yours through your position in Christ, your faith in Christ. Your faith will be tested And even in the testing of your faith, verse 7, it's being refined. And it's going to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when the Lord returns, even though you're going to go through very difficult times as a saved person, you, you know that it will be resulting in praise and honor. You have not seen him, you love him, you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice, verse 8, with joy that is inexpressible. And filled with glory. This glory that's, that, that, that you're filled with is this future glory. Verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your souls. Verses 10 to 12 talk about this great salvation that the prophets from the very beginning of time talked about. And then you see the angels at the end of verse 12. Even angels kind of want to stoop into creation and just look and see what it's like for someone to go from being estranged from God, hater of God, enemy of God, to then having a new heart, born again and brought into the family of God through Christ. Angels are just curious. They want to see this, this work of grace that doesn't work that way in their lives. So this is that great salvation. So when he says, therefore, it shows Whoa, we have a response here that is coming. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Preparing your minds for action. What we're going to see here in, in verse 13 is that we have one imperative or one command, and we have two participles. Participles are words that participate with the command. That's why they're called participles. They get the participation award. Uh, So there's one imperative, and that imperative doesn't come until the end of this verse, and that it is set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's where the imperative is, set your hope. But it's not starting there. He starts with participles that participate with this, and they kind of fall under this. So we're kind of almost going backwards a little bit. You have to understand how the grammar is arranged here. So there's preparing is the first Participle, and then you see being sober is the second participle. And this explains how we set our hope fully on the grace of God. So let's consider for a moment what this means to prepare your minds for action. I love the imagery here, and I hope that you all walk away with a very clear understanding of what this means this morning. Peter wants his readers to have hope and to have their hope built, built up. And he uses an imagery that would be common to them and common in Old Testament, New Testament times, but maybe foreign to us. Because the actual translation, some of your Bibles might say, gird up the loins of your mind. And so you kind of think, well, that's an interesting subject to talk about on a Sunday morning. What, what does this mean to gird up the loins of your mind? Well, in most of our English translations, it comes out, prepare your minds for action. So that's what it means, to prepare your mind for action. But what does it mean to gird up the loins of your mind? Well, oriental dress uh, is different than than the way that we dress. Um, It has the long flowing garments down to the feet that are around the feet. Make it kind of hard to do a lot of uh, active, uh, vigorous activity. So it was a custom, if you were going to do work or go to battle or something, to to take uh, that long flowing Uh, garment and to tuck it under the belt when they needed to prepare for action so it wouldn't get in the way Um, and so this this kind of uh, um, rearranging of how you're wearing your clothes for a certain purpose um, I think it was kind of helpful hey I I teach in the student ministry and so sometimes pictures are more helpful so so I've I've included a picture for this morning so the picture is uh, here now Here's how you gird up your loins, okay? Thanks to uh, 
the uh, art of manliness here. This is the, the manly way. Okay, so, so first of all, you've got the long tunic there. You can't really do a whole lot of fighting or laboring with it that way. So you kind of hike it up you know, to uh, mid-thigh, mid a very uncomfortable spot. Uh, then it's going to give you a little bit more mobility. Right? So then you take it and kind of gather it up in front of you, then bring it to the back, and then you bring it around, and then tie a nice little knot, get out your saber, you're ready to go to battle. Okay, so this is, this is what it means to gird up your loins to, to kind of do this. Uh, and and I, I love this. We had, we had also had a, there was a female version of this with a girl, a girl with like a pretty blue dress. She looked like Cinderella. She did the same thing afterwards. She was like, looked all like, ah, you know, kind of vicious. But I didn't want to include that one. But, uh, but this is kind of the idea. It, it's taking all that is flowing and kind of uh, in your way that could trip you up. You could step on it and, and it would hinder your ability to be active or successful in battle and to, to remove it or to get it out of the way, to kind of hike it up. Uh, and and that's, what he's, that's what he has in mind here, to, to gird up your loins. It's to gird up the loins of your, of your mind. So he's taking this imagery that they would be familiar with, and he's applying it to your, your, your brain, how your thoughts work. So essentially, if you carry over the idea, you have certain thoughts that get in the way. There are certain thoughts that trip you up. There are certain thoughts or or lines of thinking, habits of thinking that you have that are not helpful for you when you have to be active. When God is calling you to do something, you can think a certain way that, that could cause you to fall. And you need to do something about that. So whatever gets in the way, trips you up, holds you back, complicates things, you have to, you have to tuck it in. You have to gird up. And when Peter uses the word loins, talking about the hip or the waist where a belt would be wrapped around, this is like the strongest part of your body. And so he's actually talking about mental strength, the loins of your mind. Just think about having mental activity that is strong. And he's saying here we need to have strong mental activity to be ready when Christ is revealed. So we want to ask a couple of questions. What is going on? in your thought life? Have you actually thought about your thoughts? Not to go too far, psychoanalyzing, but thinking about thinking, do you do that? How, how, how regularly do you do that? Do you evaluate your, your, your thought life? Where your thoughts are going, where they're taking you? Uh, are you weak when it comes to, to keeping certain thoughts out of your mind and, and keeping other thoughts on the forefront of your mind? Do you feel like what happens in your mind isn't really as important as what you do on the outside? Do you, do you, do you see a divide or a disconnect between your thinking and your behaving and your, and your acting, your actions? Are you able to tell the difference between biblical thinking and unbiblical thinking? Can you see the difference? Can you, can you see one come through the mind and go, that's an unbiblical thought right there? And then to see another one and go, that's what I need to think about. And to know the difference, they're almost black and white, not just this blur of gray where it's just a, a mash of thoughts and you have a hard time knowing which ones are approved by God and which ones are just like this world. Do you see that your, your kind of thoughts lead to behaviors time and time again to where even the sin that you're involved in started somewhere before that and it was in the mind to where then when you trip in life, there was a certain precaution you didn't take in your mind that led you to that place and it could have prevented that from happening, and for not only yourself getting hurt, but for others being hurt, and for the name of Christ being hurt, if you were girding up the loins of your mind, had stronger mental activity. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Do you know how to do this? Do you see that, that thought go across your mind when something happens or you're feeling a certain way or you're going through a certain time of life and you're, you have this thought go across your mind that's an unbiblical thought, a, a nasty thought, a wrong thought, and do you know how to take it captive? Do you know how to say, hey, get over here, shackle it up, say, stop it. <laughs> do you know how to take those thoughts into submission 
and say, you're not free to reign here. You're not free to play here. You're going to be bound. A lot of times we let our our thinking be bullied by our feeling. And so our feelings kind of just guide the way. Everybody's talking that way in the world, right? Just do what you feel is best, not what you think is right. It's it's totally counter-biblical. When Christ talks to his disciples, and he talks to them about the most important thing, he says it has to do with loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Do you love the Lord with all your mind? Or do you say, uh, I love the Lord with some of my thoughts. I love the Lord with my mind and these places and in that time. Or is it all of your mind? And you go, well, there's those thoughts, but I mean, that's, that's different. That's in a different category. Some me time you know, or whatever we want to say about it. The way that we take our thoughts captive is a way that we can show our worship of the Lord and our love for him and how great his love is for us. When I was a teenager, uh, you know, the, the, this type of dress was, was very different than nowadays. It was cool to sag your pants. And it was actually cool to have baggy pants, meaning they're kind of like all over the place. You know, they're very heavy, a lot of denim. And so it was, you know, you had your cool belt, and it had like a little initial on the buckle. And, um, and I grew up in California, so I could not translate. But uh, there, there is kind of these baggy pants you know, sagging them, and that was like the standard of cool. If you dressed that way, you were a cool kid. That's, that's what I was told. That's what I was seeing. I was like, oh, wow, you know, that must be cool. But then it was like, as soon as you started to admire one of those cool kids, you, you watch them, like, you know, try to hop a fence that was like this high. <laughs> Their coolness just went out the window. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I'll get that. Hold on. You know, and they try to like they try to get over that fence. I mean, they land on their neck. You know, there's no way you're going to get over a fence that's three feet high, with pants that are down around your your thighs, mid thighs. Doesn't work that way. Or or if they have a friend, another one of these cool kids steals their Coke bottle from them, starts running away, and they try to chase him. You know, that's a joke. You know, uh, come back, come back. You know, and just you know try. And, they're like more focused on not losing their pants than, than actually getting back what their cool friend stole from them. And, or even go to gym class. You think, okay, gym class. You've got gym shorts. Those fit. There's elastic. Nope. Those come down too. And, yeah, I'm cool. Yeah, I'm cool on the track. Oh, we got to run a mile? Okay. You know, you're like, you're going to hurt your back doing that. You know, they just, the coolness just looked kind of ridiculous. Um, and I know baggy pants wouldn't even be close to cool today. It's the, the skinny jeans, right? It's the tight jeans. So um, see how that works. Um, but uh, an, another thing, another time to kind of think about this, this imagery is, uh, you know, not having something that's baggy or, or in the way. Uh, but even, I grew up playing soccer, and, and even when I was a defender, and there would, there would come an attacker, a forward. What you do is you don't stand straight up. You don't stand like this and go, okay, I'm going to get ready to stop him from dribbling past me. Now you start to bend your knees. You widen your stance. You put one foot forward. You know, I'm going to shade him a little bit. You give him a little, a little bit of a degree of an angle. You're going to force him to turn that ball over. And every single time, it was a drill, a practice, or a game, when I had to stop this guy who was dribbling against me, I'd do this. I'd pinch my shorts. Just pinch my shorts. Because what's happening is I'm, I'm getting more ready for action. I'm like, here comes the play. i got to be ready. Okay. And, and it's just easier that way. If my... Pants are around my thighs. I can't, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to fall. And that is so helpful because we, we know that. Whether it's your shoes that need to be tied, your pants that just need to be in the right place, your, your belt a little tighter. You know, I'm not talking about dress today. That's not at all the point. But I'm just saying what he does is he applies this concept to the mind. And I go, okay, do I get that kind of cinch up the thoughts? I'm ready for action. Setting my hope fully on grace that is to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus. Jesus is coming back. Am I ready? Am I ready? Am I living, thinking in a way that shows that, I, that I'm ready for his return? Or are you tripping on your sagging thoughts? 
that get in the way. God doesn't want you to sag your thoughts. He wants you to gird up. You get kind of practical and you start thinking about this one. You go, man, well, when are times when, when my thoughts trip me up the most? When is it that I'm least ready for action? It could be late at night, when you're bored, when you're alone, when you're on your phone. It could be after you've just failed at something. In the aftermath of feeling failure, you have these feelings and thoughts of maybe self-pity or getting down on yourself. Maybe it's after you've been offended by someone. Maybe you have a repeat offender in your life, and they just love to do that. And all you can think about is either shutting them out, shutting them up, or getting back at them. Maybe it's when you are reminded of something that's happened in your life in the past. And that thought comes to your mind for something, some reason. A thought from your past comes up and, and you just go to that downward spiral place, just going down. And God, why? Why did you allow this? Why did you bring that? Why does that define me? Why is that who I am? And you start to question the goodness and the wisdom and the sovereignty of God. Maybe it's when you're tempted and the temptation is right there in front of you and your mind is just on, on going crazy trying to just justify that behavior that you know is coming next. And you go, maybe there's a way for me to make this right. How can I justify this to where I can do that and I won't feel so bad about doing that? It's a lot of saggy thoughts, aren't there? A lot of thoughts get in the way. A lot of unbiblical thinking trips us up and need to be tied up. We need to gird up the loins of our mind, take our thoughts in hand, think biblically, renew our mind with the truth, and be transformed by it. You think proactively about how you can gird up the loins of your mind. How do you prepare your mind for action? Do you take care of your mind? Do you fill it with the right things? Do you, do you train it? Do you train your thoughts to think biblical thoughts? Do you have a quiet time? Do you have a time that is just allocated for you and God in that communication through his word? Maybe when you're overwhelmed, do you know how to take those thoughts to the Lord? And to just cry out to him. Even if you just feel raw and just kind of, I, I just don't feel right. I feel wrong, but I don't know what to do about that. Lord, ugh, I'm sorry. Here I am. Why don't I want to be in your word right now? Why am I so distracted on all the planning for winter camp last week? You know, why do I, why, why do I get so caught up in these things? Why am I so anxious? Lord, help me. You just, you just go to the Lord with those thoughts. Ask him to speak into those thoughts. We need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, like Ephesians 4.23 says, or Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And the whole motivation is after that command that's coming up really soon, and that is to set your hope fully on the grace that is coming the blessings of your future salvation, the salvation that you have now that will be realized in the future, that judgment day, when it comes, is not for you. It was for Christ for you. And when that day comes, when he is known, when he is revealed, when Jesus is revealed to the world, to all heaven and all earth, that Jesus is the eternal king, are you ready? Or are you tripping and tripping and tripping? And fallen to where when that day comes, it's not a glorious day. It's a dark day, the darkest. Second instruction right here is another participle coming at you. It's to sober up. This helps us also set our hope fully on future grace. And it involves the mind. 
I mean, that's, that shouldn't surprise us. As Christians who study God's word, when we look at this and go, am I ready for judgment day? Am I ready for the end? Am I ready? This, this day is coming at any moment. We see signs all over that this world is not getting better. It's getting worse. And we know the Lord has promised he will return and be faithful to all of his promises. And so how do you prepare for that? How do you set your hope on eternity and stand firm in grace? It involves your mind. Your thinking. When it says to be sober or being sober-minded, it's not just talking about literal drunkenness from wine, which does affect the mind, so it applies, but it's not limited to that. This is a mental drunkenness or a, or a spiritual kind of drunkenness where there is no self-control. It's when you don't have control over not only your, your mind, but your spirit, your, your whole body, your whole life. You start acting in a way that is off balance. And, and you're, you're, in control, uh, you're not in control of your life, but something else is controlling you. There's other thoughts, other feelings that are beginning to make you tipsy. Like a drunkard who's trying to walk a straight line, they can't. Do it, and there's a straight line that the Lord has slapped out right in front of us in his word to walk. And if we're not living sober-minded, and we're so intoxicated by selfishness and our sinful pleasures that we keep in our life, we try to walk that line, and we just tip over every time. We can't stay straight. We can't walk the path of righteousness. Thomas Schreiner comments this. He says, there is a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God that is anesthetized by the attractions of the world. When people are lulled into such drowsiness, they lose sight of Christ's future revelation of himself and concentrate only on fulfilling their earthly desires. The strongest Christians, the most mature Christians, have their mind most set on glory. Most set on the revelation of Jesus Christ. They're not afraid of that day. They're confident. They stand firm in grace. Those who are the weakest don't think about that. All they think about are the immediate pleasures of the flesh. So something comes, it happens, it feels good, they do it. Something else comes, it feels right to do, so they do it. And it's just all this. There's no big picture of living. It's the small picture. It's just these few steps. And it's just the flesh longing for and, and going for these things. And that is not a, a spiritual sobriety that we've been called to here. We need to have self-control. Self-discipline. Sometimes we just need a sobriety checkpoint in life to be able to just pull over, have someone help us see where we've been operating in our life in a, in a way that, that is not so sober. Maybe they can, they can help us think through these things. Help us see where our thinking has just gone out of whack. It's easy to get intoxicated by certain things. They, uh, the, the TV show, the new gadget technology, a relationship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, uh, even, even other, other teachers, too, that are teaching things that are not sound doctrine. You can get really wrapped up in these new fads and, uh, and, and just get taken away by these things. That's, that's not being sober-minded. You're losing control. You make your life all about these things that are not about what Christ has called us to. And they're off base. So think, what does it mean to be sober-minded? Well, it means to have control over my life. And, and where are the areas where I'm out of control? What causes me to get out of control? We need to harness those in to sober up. He uses this same word again in chapter 4, verse 7, and again in chapter 5, verse 8, giving more reasons to show why we need to sober up. 4, 7, he talks about the end of all things is at hand. That fits. 
talking about the end times, looking forward. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. It even affects your prayers. And then later, chapter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful, prepared, thoughtful, vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So he gives a lot of reason, just in this letter alone, to have a sobriety in our thinking, in our approach to life. Third is to look up. The third instruction actually holds the imperative or the command, and this comes right after that part, being sober-minded. It says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So to gird up, to sober up, and to look up has this idea of looking to the Lord, to Him. And this is the command. And so it drives everything at the beginning. This is the first command that comes off the page of this letter. And it has to do with this kind of hope that we need to set somewhere. It's just another reminder that you look at the commands in Scripture. And what are they always preceded by? What always comes before these commands in Scripture to do something differently it is to focus on something that God has done for you first. Chapter 1, verses 3 to 12, unpacks this great salvation that you have, the great mercy that God has for you, and how he, he caused you, he did, caused you to be born again. He brought you new life, this great salvation. And then you're at that place of just going, well, well that's awesome. Well, what do you want me to do? And then here comes the commands. So the commands don't hit us like cold water and go, oh, I didn't want that. No, they, they come and they go, okay, what else? Tell me what else you want me to do, Lord. You've done a, you've done a measurably great thing in, in my life, and I've been reminded of it right here. So you can give me any command that fits in your word. It's just boom, boom, boom. And you're going to go, here I go. It's my delight to do this, to follow you in this way. So here's just another example of that. You see it all over the Bible, even in the Old Testament. Before the law was given, the most like, like do-don't kind of thing, and what is right before the Ten Commandments is a reminder. I redeemed you out of Egypt. I rescued you. You once were slaves, and now you've been set free. And so here they are, these Hebrews set free from slavery and here comes the law. You think that they would receive the law from Moses and go, great, whatever it is, I'll follow it. That's okay. I'm free. You don't think that they would squabble about it, forget about it, argue about it, resist it, and go, oh, I don't want to. You know, and just have these kind of fleshly responses. You would think that what would be rich in their mind was their deliverance from Egyptian captivity. And they'd be saying, you, you just tell me what to do, Lord. I'm going to follow you. And that's where we're at. That's where we need to be, is looking at the life of Christ, the work of God in our life, and go, you've got me. Hook, line, and sinker. I'm following you. I'm not fighting you. So not only do we have that reminder there, that this command comes after these things that God has done for us, but we see that the, the hope that is talked about here is, is something we need to hope fully. When he says hope fully, what comes to your mind? Well, I guess maybe there's a way to, to hope partially, right? Or to hope partly and to hope not enough and to have a hope that falls short. That's what he's saying. But hope is the expectation of something that will happen. It's much stronger than wishing upon a star. You know, it's much stronger than blowing a candle out and wanting something to happen after your birthday. It's much stronger than throwing a coin into a well and, and wanting something to go a certain way. Uh, this kind of biblical hope is just, it's a certainty. You hold on to it, and you know that it's true, even though you don't see it yet. It's a confident expectation. It's an eager anticipation and it's always forward focused. Whenever you see hope, it's always focused forward. 
So really what hope is doing is holding on to the promises of God and knowing that he will deliver. If you think about it, one of my favorite verses in end times theology when you study that is Revelation 19.11. In Revelation 19.11, it talks about when the Lord returns to the earth and he's going to bring judgment on those who are not saved and those who have rebelled against him, and he's going to bring the kingdom for those who have been redeemed and believe in him. And what it says about him is that his name is faithful and true. Why would that name be given to him at that point and recognized? Here he is, the day of the Lord, what we're setting our hope in, and he's, he's referred to as faithful and true. Faithful and true. Why? Because he's made promises all throughout the Bible. And he is faithful to his word. He is true to his word. And he will bring it about. He will absolutely bring about the salvation and eternal life for those who trust in Christ. He will bring down all other powers on the earth. And he'll bring one power. The government will be on his shoulders. He will reign. And we will reign with him for some reason. He chose for it to be that way. Do you set your hope on on this God who is faithful and true? It would cause you to want to maybe study the Bible and go, well, what are the promises of God? Man, I need to think about that more and, and put hope in the Lord more. I'm missing this or that. But this hope here that we need to set our hope fully on is a future grace. Let me put it this way. If God has caused you to be born again, and you are in fact a new person, it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. If that's you, then you have been saved, even if it was last weekend. You are saved, and nothing can change that in today. And so you talk to people in that way, and you live that way. And guess what? You will be saved. It's past, present, and future. That's what we see right here in this verse. The grace that will be brought to you. That's a future thing. That's a future bestowal of grace. You have blessings that are waiting for you as a Christian. You're headed toward those things. He's called you toward those things. And he says, put your hope in these things. Like a kid on Christmas Day. Just like, I hope that box is what I want. You know, they're looking at that box and they just believe that it's that thing that they, you know, and, and in our salvation, it's much deeper than that. And we know that there is this fullness of our salvation that it's just, Lord, free me from this frail body. Ugh. Take away all of these strong temptations that I have to sin. I know they're wrong, not right. Oh, help me to see you more clearly because sometimes I forget you. I want to talk with you regularly. I want to spend time with you. I want relationships to be right, not wrong. Hope in that. It's coming. There will be a day, it's soon, where all sin will be put away. The curse will have no effect on us anymore. Our bodies, our souls, our future, our hope our relationships, and most importantly, our relationship with our Creator and our Savior. Well, we, we must not put our hope halfway in the promises of God. We should put our hope fully in the promises of God. So do you long for heaven this morning? Do you sit there this morning and go, ah, Uh, Lord, please make it soon. Or, are you still fascinated by and and intrigued by and enamored by the things of this world? Is there something else that you've put your hope in? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's retirement. Maybe it is a cell phone. Maybe it is something just that you want that seems good too. But you put your hope in that rather than in what we're called to and commanded to put our hope in. Isn't that cool to know this morning that God 
tells you, commands you to put your hope in something, it's like you know that that's going to happen. <laughs> you go, okay. So unbridled hope, putting right into it. That's where I'm putting all my stock. And in that heavenly inheritance, that salvation, we find this kind of hope. So we need to gird up, sober up, so that we can look up. And as you look up, take care of those thoughts. Don't let them trip you up. Stay focused. Know the difference between biblical thinking and unbiblical thinking. For the day is soon where Jesus Christ will be revealed. Everyone will see what they don't now see. And that he's king of kings. He's creator in flesh. And there is a kingdom coming where he will be enthroned. And there's a new creation and a new earth that we get to be a part of. And it is a paradise. So as a church, let's cry in our hearts, anchors away. Just lob those things into heaven and say, my hope is in the Lord. Not in these things, but is in heaven. No matter what storms come, you will be safe. You won't capsize. You won't drown. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for this great hope that we have and a precious Savior that we have in Jesus. We can't total up the value that he is, the worth that he is, the beauty that he is, the glory that is his. Lord, we, we love you and thank you for this great salvation. And we pray that this great salvation has captured our attention this morning. And I pray that if there are some here who have, who have just begun to think about this, Lord, that you would bring about and appoint conversations that are follow-up to help those people find answers in your word and help us to live in a way where our minds are not kept for ourselves, but our minds are those things that we give to you as sacrifices each day, saying, I will, I will take captive that thought. That is a wrong thought, and I will turn that away. That will not live in me. Lord, help us to, to see clearly what is the reality, and the reality is that you are coming soon, and you are coming to reign. You're coming to judge and to save. And God, we long for that day, and I, I pray that it would be soon. Until then. We give you our days, we give you this day, and we give you this song now. In your name, amen.